Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is hope, life, truth, goodness for us in your word. Lord, I pray for wisdom. Your word calls for wisdom as we look at this passage. And I pray you would help us to maybe set aside some of our preconceived uh, notions. And let's look at your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and uh, assurance, even as we look at things that are a little bit dark and disturbing in this passage, we would also remember uh, that it points to your victory, your resurrection, your salvation, and the hope we have in you. Jesus, I pray that the words I would share today would be your words for your people and that you would use them to grow us more and more uh, to be like you, to abide in you. Lord, that's our heart, is that we would uh, abide in you, be found more and more like you and grow in, in who you are and who you've called us to be. Uh, so bless our time, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Let me just grab a drink quick. Verse 18 says, This calls for wisdom. I was preparing, as I was preparing this passage this week, this sermon, that kept ringing in my ears. This calls for wisdom. Why? Because this passage is known for its bizarre interpretations. If you didn't know that, you've been in, in certain Christian circles for some time. I'm sure you've, you've heard about the infamous Mark of the Beast, the infamous 666 which, spoiler alert, is not a microchip implant. But we'll get there in just a moment. In chapter 13, what do we have going on? John's vision retells the same story of the spiritual warfare, only this time, instead of sort of this cosmic heavenly language, he's using the earthly, beastly imagery from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 and 12. If you don't know, Daniel was an Old Testament prophet from Israel's scriptures, and God gave Daniel a series of prophetic visions where powerful nations that would come up through history, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, were symbolized by beasts. And in Revelation 12, we find the return of beasts. We said the dragon has been thwarted by Christ's victory, but he is still continues to tantrum and attack God's people. He knows his time is short. I kind of feel like we almost get the picture of the enemy as sort of a temper tantrum toddler, sort of screaming and pounding his fists and laying down in a grocery store aisle, not wanting to listen to his, you know, not wanting to go anywhere. He's tantruming, knowing his time is short. And so he imposes, uh, he wants to impose his will. He wants to go after those that follow Jesus, and he does so by empowering symbolic beasts. Now, some uh, dispensationalist interpreters of Revelation believe these are future individual people. But it's clear that the allusions to Daniel and from John himself, especially at the end, that these beasts symbolize human empires and their leaders and the systems in society which blaspheme God and war on his saints. 
The first beast conquers with violence and oppression. He goes about putting people into captivity, it says, and he's killing people by the sword. He's the, it's the military might of human regimes. And for the seven churches, remember that Revelation's written to the seven churches, it was obvious what this was about. This reminded them almost instantly of the national military power of Rome to conquer and to destroy. It was, it's the Romans, after all, who invented crucifixion, right? Which is one of the, uh, you know, devising, excruciating ways of slowly killing people who stood in their way. And so John's telling the early church to be aware that that power, that nationalistic, violent, oppressive power that they are experiencing has the evil of the dragon behind it. And he calls Christians, look at verse 10, he calls Christians to endure and to hold on to God, knowing that they who perish in their faith, and we've seen it several times in Revelation, that those who perish will be rescued comforted and restored in Jesus even if they die by following the slain lamb. And so even as we might lay down our lives uh, in, in allegiance to Jesus, while around us the empires uh, wage war, we know we have assurance and hope that God will see us through. And that has been the hope for martyrs of the Christian faith, hundreds uh, all throughout the centuries, thousands throughout the centuries. In fact, there's still many, many, many who are martyred for their faith in the world today uh, and in modern times. You don't hear a lot about it, but it still happens. We know that even if we die for our love of Jesus, he will see us through. He will hold us fast. And now the second beast shows up, and the second beast props up and supports the first beast. It deceives all who will listen into worshiping the beast. And there's lots of references to things it can do and whatnot. But if you look at verse 14, it talks about the beast being wounded and yet living. And N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Revelation, uh, talks about that there was, uh, there was likely a rumor at the time. They used to talk about rumors circulating that the emperor, uh, the Roman emperor, who had been wounded by the sword had somehow miraculously survived. And so there was this, this thought going around that somehow he's, he's alive. Biblical scholar Tim Mackey, he describes the second beast as the economic propaganda machine, the systems and nations that support and prop up and point people to worship the forces of violence and oppression and evil. And notice how the first beast, I think it's interesting, it seems friendly like a lamb, but then it speaks like the dragon. If the beast looks like it wants to do right, looks like a lamb. Where have we seen the lamb before, right? That's John's symbol for Jesus. So it looks right, and yet you can tell by what it speaks that it's actually in service to the dragon. It's actually poised to do great evil. And notice how it causes all who engage in trade and economics, all who engage in public life and in the public forum, to pledge their allegiance to the first beast. And pledging your allegiance is symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or on the hand. And again, this is an infamous image, and I'm going to suggest it's not about microchips or barcodes. 
or a smudge that if you look at, it becomes a 3D image, such as in the Left Behind series. John is making a clear Old Testament reference. The writing on the forehead and on the hand is a callback to Israel's Shema. The Shema is an ancient Jewish prayer from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 that many Jews still pray today. And you can think of it almost like uh, just how we have the Lord's Prayer in our Christian tradition as sort of a standard prayer that many people know and memorize and say often. The Jews had the Shema. And it went like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, strength. Um, Actually, I think my soul's taken out. It's been a while since I read. I actually had to memorize it in Hebrew when I, when I took Hebrew, now that I'm thinking of it. And, and that was a while ago, which is weird to think of. Anyway, it's one of the most influential prayers in Jewish history. You can think of it as sort of the Pledge of Allegiance to God and a hymn of praise wrapped up in one. And part of the Shema prayer in Deuteronomy 6, 8, contains these words. You shall bind these words as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as symbols between your eyes. The eyes are the place from which we see. The hands are the things we use to act. And the point is that the Shema prayer uh, is to guide people's lives, to guide our vision and guide their actions in every moment of life. And so the forehead and the hand are the place of your vision and the place of your work, how you see life and what you do in life. And so the call in Deuteronomy for the Shema to be on your forehead or on your hand is the call symbolically to keep God always before you, to let him shape your vision of the world and to serve him by what you do not necessarily literally putting it on your forehead and hand, though there were some in the Jewish faith who did that so that they could remember. They would have it written and have it on their forehead or on their hand. But the point wasn't necessarily literally to do that. The point was to keep it there in your vision and here on your hand. That we remember God is Lord and that that is what what shapes our imaginations and how we see the world and it shapes why we do what we do in the world. And so faithful, faithful Israel was to keep this prayer. God is God alone. And we're not to elevate any other idol or power or nation above God. He's to be central in their minds and their hearts and their imaginations. And they're to see him as the one they worship and the one that they love in their work and their life. Right? Their lives and their allegiance are God's alone. And so as John describes this mark of the beast, it's the anti-Shema. Rather than putting God first and giving their allegiance to the Lamb, these people are giving their allegiances to beastly empires. And so the point of the mark of the beast is not a bizarre government-sanctioned brand or microchip implant, though that's not impossible. That could happen. But to focus on the conspiracy theory of that is to miss the clear point of the passage. It pictures the stark choice that we all face. Either our allegiance is to Jesus and we allow him to influence how we look at the world and how we act, 
or your allegiance can be to the destructive, beastly, sinful human empires, which are influenced by the evil of the dragon. It's not unlike what we read in Psalm 1. There's the way of the righteous, and there's the way of the wicked. One path leads to life, the other path leads to death. And so whether it refers to a nation at some point actually enacting a branding policy on people or not, that's not so much the point. The point of the Mark of the Beast is clear. You can allow the Shema, a faithful life and worship of God, to be what dominates your vision and your actions, your eyes and your hand, or you can give your allegiance to the beastly empires that seek to control and dominate in our world. And when a person devotes themselves to destroying God or seeking to destroy his work, you can't actually destroy God, but tries to destroy God or his work or the church, if a person is worshiping the power and the influence of the state with personality cults, control over the economy, that person is devoting themselves to idolatrous systems of beastly, greedy, human empires. That's the mark of the beast. And it's not impossible that actually some of the early Christians would have to acknowledge Caesar is Lord instead of Jesus is Lord before they could engage in public trade. And so this was very real for the original audience, not just a far-off future idea. And now the final point of this chapter really drives this home. Look at John's words again in verse 18. He says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. We're talking about a person. And, and his number is 666. So John stops all the symbolic vision, stops all the imagery, stops all of this describing this. And he gives the reader some sound instruction. He says, be wise and discerning about the symbols and the imagery here. And thus, this number has fascinated readers for centuries. And I understand that. But it had a very clear meaning for John and for his first readers. John says the number refers to a person. All of this imagery about beasts is about someone in their present day. And remember, John knew Greek and Hebrew. And in both of those languages, the letters are also numbers. The letters have numeric value. And so he's saying the beast's mark and the number are actually representative of a real person's name. And what name comes out as 666? In Greek, it's Nero Caesar. And in Hebrew, it's the beast. And so John is saying, be wise. Nero, the emperor, he represents all of this terrible beastly empire of Rome. These ones who, like the second beast in our passage, can control who can buy and sell. These ones who control, can want to control who you can worship and how you should live. Overtaking the call of the Christians to live by the Shema and instead to live with their allegiance to Rome. And John's telling his readers, don't be naive. Rome may be the beast, the dragon may be behind him, empowering him. But both the dragon and the beast will be ultimately defeated by 
Jesus, they will not endure forever. And, of course, the rest of the book is really going to hammer that home. What does all this mean for the church in our day? When nations exalt their own power and their economic security and their wealth and their greed as false gods, they become like beasts. And such nations often demand the allegiance of all others. And when one succumbs to that idolatry and allows that evil to dominate how they see and how they act, it's like the anti-Shema written on our foreheads and our hands. And here's one of the key points for us, folks, is that Nero and the Roman Empire were just the most recent examples of the beastly empires from Daniel's vision. Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day. Rome was the latest beast in John's day. But that pattern applies to any future nation that chooses to turn against God and starts to worship its violence and its economic greed and calls people to serve that as an idol. And it's not just for the big examples like maybe Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, but even our own Western nations like Canada and the States can succumb to this pattern. When countries choose to listen to the dragon and elevate their power and their greed and demand allegiance and start to seek to destroy God's people, they are becoming the latest beastly empire in this pattern. And so this isn't just about some far-off future, one-world order sort of thing. It's what has happened and continues to happen time and time again throughout human history. And that's one of the most important messages of Revelation for us today. How then is the church called to respond, not just today, though today is a good example, but how does the church respond all throughout history when we find ourselves living in nations that are becoming beastly empires? John calls us to wisdom and to endurance and to faith, to be wise and discerning the times we live in, to be wary of when human powers take on beastly characteristics, to be wary of giving our allegiance to anyone or anything other than Jesus. And I hope you can see how Revelation is not just about future events. The beast is not just one nation far off or one sort of antichrist figure far off. It's about every human ruler who chooses an antichrist way of living, that chooses to follow the dark influence of the dragon and lets that be the, the regime that they choose to follow. In case you didn't notice, also, the Christians, the church, is present for all of this. They're not whisked away by some sort of rapture that would not have brought a lot of hope to the seven churches in Asia who are undergoing terrible persecution. What would they have gotten out of that, right? Or to any generation that's endured evil because of their faith. No, no, no. This is a call to endure because we go through this. The church goes through beastly empires all the time. And so there's a call to endure because of our faith, 
to potential martyrdom, but knowing that we are sealed by God and will pass through death into his everlasting life and joy. And next week, chapter 14, John talks about another king, the slain lamb, who stands in contrast to the beastly empires. But today's call is a call to wisdom in the time we live in and a call to endurance when we suffer because of our faith in Jesus. I want to end with three verses that talk about rejoicing in our sufferings. And I know we're not suffering in the same way that our brothers and sisters are in other countries where they are persecuted for their faith. But there's moments where we maybe suffer in our own way because of our faith in Jesus. And we're called to endurance and hope when we face those moments. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. He says, rejoice in our sufferings. We know that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Do you know that God wants to work on your character? God cares about shaping how you see the world, how you choose to respond, how you act in the world. God wants to shape that. And sometimes he shapes it through our suffering. James, in chapter 1, verse 12, says, Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James goes on. He says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you give us wisdom for how to live in the world as Christians when the cities or the nations, the ideas that permeate our culture, the places we live in, are far from you. When they start to take the look of beastly empires, you call us to endure, you call us to wisdom. And Lord, I thank you for the hope you've given us, that even for those who are suffering for their faith today around the world, those of us who maybe have family and loved ones who make fun of us because of our faith in you. Lord, I thank you that we have the promise of your hope, your kingdom, your salvation, your forgiveness, your life, and that you call us to endure hardship, to endure suffering, to allow that to shape our characters. And Lord, I pray that in this season, as we as Christians navigate what it means to follow government orders, wrestling perhaps in our own hearts with weariness from the pandemic, weariness with the latest changes, Lord, help us to endure well, to endure with hope, to endure with faith, knowing our ultimate future is in you. We're held by you and found in you. 
Help us to share that good hope that you love us and you love your world with those who are suffering today. Help us to live that out. I ask this in Jesus' name. And Lord, we think today, especially of those who are not well, who are stuck at home, those going through various medical treatments, just pray over our church family today, Lord, that you would bless each one. Each one who's watching this, whether it's live or down the road, they turn it on. Lord, bless each household, each child, each adult, Lord, the various things on our plates. Lord, do a work of shaping our character and our hearts as we seek to live for you in this time. We ask this in your name. Amen.